Everything Ben Ross has done in his working life is clearly top shelf. Whilst there may be a mythical hand guiding his every move, to me, Ben has been in complete control of his own destiny as he steps into different roles and guises in different countries and levels up his career every single step. Ben is self-aware, well-rounded and poised, a risk taker with a brilliant mind and deep understanding of the human condition, especially his own. For a business podcast brought to you by Edison Partners, it's refreshing to have Ben lay his cards on the table and open up about his own drivers and motivations. Whilst you're going to learn heaps about product market fit, lean startups, customer validation, and much, much more, what Ben really drives home is how culture, values, and people, especially product managers, are always the building blocks of great product and leading indicators of company success. Enjoy our discussion. Ben Ross, founder of Propel Ventures, welcome to Discipline. Good to be here, Tony. Now, you've come out of Monash University with a law degree, jumped into Allen's as an M&A lawyer. Was a lawyer how you saw yourself when you were a young boy at Yarra Valley Grammar, a school more noted for its footballers than lawyers? So I think my parents and the dogma of the time suggested that I should be a good lawyer. But um, personality-wise, I think I didn't have the attention to detail to be as good as it, good at it as the best. Um, I think it's one of those scenarios where you do well at school and everyone says you should be a doctor or a lawyer. Yeah. Maybe yeah. nowadays they say you should be, be an, an entrepreneur. entrepreneur. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that until now. It's probably the thing. Yeah. Um, but you, yeah, you only lasted two years then. Yeah. At- I think it was three actually. Okay. Um, yeah, I was a couple of years at M&A and then one, one year in banking and finance. I think that that put the nail in the coffin. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't get drier than that. But what drove you from the law firm then into Canberra's beating political heart, uh, defence in particular. Yeah, so I, 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 when I was at uni, I enjoyed um, my friends in the law school um, the, a lot, but I enjoyed the subject matter of the economics um, and commerce degree that I did. So after doing a bit of law and thinking, this is not working for me, um, I wanted to get back into the commerce and economic policy side of it. I was really fortunate, you know, there's... It's often not like what you know, but who you know, but at, in, particularly in politics. And I was lucky to get an introduction by a guy called Danny Rosen to um, work um, as a policy advisor for a senator, which is really a great opportunity to do economic policy at speed, like breakneck speed. And that must have been an incredible experience. It was I incredible. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it was fascinating. Um, you just at the cutting edge of like, you know, politics, business and um, and economics. And I actually started with Richard Alston doing yes. um, uh, e-commerce and like broadband, like rollout policy. So how do we, you know, get, how do we generate demand in outer suburbs for, uh, that encourages the economic signals for the Telstra and others to invest in broadband in those areas. So it was like, um, setting up demand generation pods, for example. So things like that. It was just like, it was great. It's one of those things where you do it now um, and it's quite unrealistic and un- uh, unimaginable, like the sorts of things that you're in charge of. In defence, for example, I was in, I was the policy advisor for a couple of, uh, for, for buying like um, a few hundred million dollars worth of tanks and a couple of billion dollars worth of field vehicles. And I was just a kid, right? Um um, and you, the trajectory from there is either become a politician. Stay in politics. Yeah, which, which you know, Josh Feinberg and Kelly O'Dwyer and Mitch Fifield and all those folks that I was hanging out with now are doing a great job of. Um, or jump out and do something else. Yeah. Many do government relations, actually, from there. But you jumped out to Boston Consulting Group. So yeah. was, that, was that a natural progression where you tapped on the shoulder or you thought that's the that's the sort of thing you needed to do to round yourself out? Yeah, it was. I was like... I, I can't see myself in politics forever. Business is for me. So, what's the most business-like thing that's what I'm that, that's similar to what I'm doing today, and I love in politics and consulting was like it was it. And um, so that's I mean, it's an incredible alumni. It's also very difficult to break into because it's highly competitive. Yeah. What at that point do you think set yourself apart from any of the other contenders for a spot in this renowned consulting group? Yeah, I think it was the, that combination of. Um, that, that pastiche of skills that I'd gotten from from really 
doing a variety of things <clears throat> um, and that I, I don't think I had the like the I wouldn't have been seen to have the intellectual horsepower to come straight out of uni to do it. In fact, you know, when I when I came into BCG, I remember looking around thinking these are really high caliber individuals that like definitely had more analytical horsepower than I did. Um, but I was able to bring other things to the table. More be, worldly, more yeah, more worldly, more. I, I could um, I could. Um, capture the imagination of clients and develop ideas and pull things together at a high level. But if, if you wanted me to put to, to get like a, a cost out spreadsheet for a bank, which I had to do that, you know, had sort of many different modules, I could definitely do it, but I wasn't the best at it. Yeah. Yeah. So at this stage, what, you're 28, 30 years old? There's something about that. Uh, you've pieced together some of your life from mergers and acquisitions, government, and BCG, but you mentioned before you want to get into business, into private companies. Why? Why not stay on the advisory side? Uh, yeah, so um, even when I was a lawyer, um, I thought I'm too far away from the action here. Um, I'd love to meet with the entrepreneurs that I'd be documenting their deals. Um, and then the same thing happened at BCG. It was like, got these great plans that we put together, but I wanted to be the one that executed them. Yes. And so I had this great, I said, now it's time to get into business. And I just said, where in the world is like fast pace, interesting business. And I was like- San Francisco. That's it, right? San Francisco, <laughs> technology. And this was just after the bust. So it was like, it was a, a dead zone when I arrived. Um, and I remember being having my passport stamped on the way in and the passport guy said, you know, there's no jobs here. Um, but I, I called on the BCG alumni and ended up being able to work with a bunch of um, BCGs that had sort of broken their way out of the asylum into um, a great company there called Intuit, yes. which no one had heard of yes. at that time, yeah. but actually is probably one of the great places to work now on the list that, you know, it's, it's, it's just a wonderful place. Yes. So I was quite fortunate to land there. And as financial software... Yeah, it's a it's accounting software like MYB and Zero. Yeah, which at the time, like the most boring thing you could think of. In fact, the morning of my interview at Intuit, I interviewed at Google. They'd offered me a role there, and I wasn't even going to turn up to the interview at Intuit. But I thought I've, I've made a commitment to do that. It's over the road, so I turned up. And you know, embarrassingly, now I remember saying to um, the 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 person there, Alex, I said, "Ah, oh, Alex." does it really make sense for me to even be in this interview? Like I probably should just take the offer that I was given this morning. Um, and he said, absolutely makes sense. And and Alex Lindner is this um, guy who's one of my mentors who can sell ice to Eskimos. And he didn't even have to push that hard, but I was like, you're the sort of person that I would love to yes. work for. Yeah. And my career has really been about finding these people um, that I just think – I could um, nestle in under your wing and you're an inspiration to me. So you're always looking for mentors. I mean, it's interesting you say that. This, You know, you had this opportunity at this incredible masthead of Google, um, but then a personality drove you into into it. Yeah. Was it, you know, you, you align yourself with people that uh, you feel comfortable with? Is that part of your... So there's two, there's two parts to it. I think the first is that um, there was a comment that Alex said in that interview where he said, where he said you can be one of a thousand smart people at Google, or you can be like one of 10 smart people here and really shine um, and, and make a, and have an accelerated career. And so that was kind of interesting. The second is that um, like I have a, I have a broken relationship with my father and I think that subconsciously that has affected the way that I actually act um, in terms of my career, like uh, if I piece it back together, I think why has it happened? And there's just been certain people that I have looked for, sort of what you would otherwise get from a father right. in in the workplace, which is probably a bit weird. But no, I, don't I don't think, think that's so. Gone on. No, I don't <laughs> think so. I mean, I'm not going to get into pop psychiatry, <laughs> but uh, I think that makes sense. Looking for you know uh, a father figure in business or yeah. someone you can someone you can work, learn from yeah. and take a bit of guidance on the way. Yep, I think that makes a lot of sense. So. You get this, Alex has this interview with you. You got an offer from Google. This is sounding like a sliding door moment in your life. Take me through how you rationalise the next decision to take this job at Intuit. So it was all done on the person. Like, um, and uh, 
And and I had the opportunity to meet with like the three or four other people that I would be working with and they were all from BCG. So I sort of just like knew the DNA that I was getting into and it really was a situation where like it, this was a nascent like great culture. Yep. And and that was and and it was interesting because a few months after that we did a couple of really interesting projects but um, one of my projects had finished and the founder of Intuit, a guy called Scott Cook, um, who's probably the... Whilst he's the founder of Intuit, he's a product manager, right? like like Jeff Bezos is and others, and they, and so he's an amazing product manager. And he wanted to do it an analysis of like what makes product management great, like how do you be the best? And he asked Alex, "Do you have someone in your group that's kind of half smart that can do some work with me and do the running around? Because I'd like to deconstruct what makes product great because we Intuit had sort of slid for about a decade before I arrived." Um, they had one big hit and then it gone sideways, and so um, and so Alex said, "Here, take Ben. He's, he, you can have him for like two months or something." And so I got to work like just like side by side with Scott, and I got introduced to this concept of product management, which I never, I didn't even know what it was, and I just thought like, "This is where's this been all my life?" Yes, like I wish I, I see people that are twenty one that know what product management is and think, "Man, you're lucky." Like I only found out when I was like thirty. Four or something. And it's one of these things that they say in SaaS companies in particular, that the product manager, the interface between the customer and the business and the tech team is the most important role. It's the it's the it's the the catalyst role that can make something worth a billion dollars or nothing. Like it's it's the role. So what let's answer the question, what makes product great? Uh so a big problem that no one's solving well that like you can get deep with customers to understand how to solve it differently. And that, and um, Scott used to talk about customer-driven innovation, which is like getting the insights from customers, meeting technology-driven innovation, which is like understanding how technology can solve that problem, met with like great design. And so for me, I was just like, ah, makes sense. <laughs> like I can do those things. And was this something happening in technology in particular, that wasn't Bad, it was happening badly everywhere. Yeah. Like yeah. so, and this is the reason why we created Propel because there's too many products that are built that are, that just suck. And so, like if people um, knew a bit more about what they were doing, we'd have better products. And people, and, and I, I see people working hard in startups and everything else. And I think like you potentially are like wasting your time or wasting resources. And that is something generally that like just grates on me. And you know, there's this whole concept, I guess, in startups of, um, you know, agile and lean and the lean startup and iterative. Is this is this feeding into great product? Is getting an MVP out there fast yeah. and then building on it with a customer feedback loop and making sure so you... So this is all part of it, right? And so, you know, interestingly, Scott, like he um, he's funded like a big university course on product management in Wisconsin. But aside from that, there's not really great university courses about this. And he found just a bunch of people around the valley that had different ideas that contributed to great product management. Early in our days, um, when we wanted to increase the capability of product managers, we came up with this concept of having design forums and we brought people in that could teach the Intuit product managers. One of the first ones was um, uh, Rees. Uh, Eric Rees. Eric Rees. Yeah. So we bring Eric in and... It's just like, yes, this is how it's done. And so that sort of starts to form like one of the chapters or the bedrocks of sort of product management going forward. And so here at Propel, we've laid on our own mini MBA of what you would probably do at Wisconsin. And it's basically, you know, a combination of these new ways of thinking about how do you, how do you rapidly iterate with customers to get to the inside. And for those who don't know, Eric Rees wrote The Lean, Lean Startup, Startup and it's one of the seminal books for yeah. technology, MVP. Yeah, I'd say it's the most most important for, that I've had alongside yeah. like Andy Grove's book on then sort of leading teams. And, and again, that was a situation where I'd seen it done. I reckon all my managers at Intuit had read the book and then like 10 years later, I <laughs> discovered the book and I'm like, oh, that's what they were all doing, you know? <laughs> This obviously starts to um, Intuit obviously turns around and becomes a you know a much uh, more profitable company. But at some point, you decide to get itchy feet and go off to London. Yeah. So well, before that, actually, so 
um, I did this great strategy project about um, about how. So essentially, I take the bus or the train down to Intuit each day with all these Google people because Intuit and Google are across the road from each other. And I'd say to the Google folks, you know, the share of wallet that we get at Intuit is like $700 a year. And they'd say, oh, ours is unlimited, Ben. Like we have unlimited share of wallet because like the more leads we give, the bigger the business grows, etc. So we then did a strategy project on how could Intuit get like unlimited share of wallet. So how do you help? The, the nexus of that is, how do you help a small business to grow their business? And um, and so I captured this insight there of you can help a small business to grow their business by sending them leads. And so I teamed up with an Australian and we got some angel funding and bought some technology and built a business called Quotify. Which sold to, to Telstra. Telstra Census, was it? Census. So yep. sold to Census, yeah. Yep, yep. Um, and so- then I could either go back to go with the transaction into Census um, which I prefer not to do, or um, I took another option, which was to build the business that was that I always wanted to build. Like we sold to Census too early in my view, and I wanted to grow that business much bigger. So I, I actually confronted my fears there and called the CEO of the competitor. Probably took me a week before I had the guts to say, I'm out of the game. Like I felt like I'd failed. And I called him. I still remember the courage. It sounds easy, but it was really hard to basically say, hey, like I'm not... I'm, I don't, I'm not in the business anymore. Um, and he said, we would love someone like you to run our business in Europe. And so, um, yeah, my wife and I packed up, went over there and we sort of, we bought a business in France, stitched it together with create, create use that technology to launch in the UK and, um, and then went across Europe with that business. And that went quite well? It went well. It was um, loss-making when I arrived because we'd spent all this money on like starting the business in the UK. And so I got it to a point of uh, break-even, which I like all of a sudden I like sighed with relief. And that's when I um, I got the call um, from uh, the folks at Bain Capital to come to Australia and help them with the, the uh, MYOB uh, business that they just bought. So you were happy then, you'd been to Europe, you'd been to the US, you'd ticked the box in terms of getting overseas experience, you've got a, a huge range of your own experiences from law, consulting, entrepreneurship and a successful exit under your belt. Uh, why go work in a corporate? Why not yeah, go straight on to another venture? Yeah, so like I'd had, whilst I'd had the exit, like it, there wasn't enough money to really like didn't change my life. And I felt like I had more, I had to have another run at it. And I hadn't, and I, um, the company that I was working for in, in London, um, that was owned by IAC. That was the, Home Advisor? Yeah, Home Advisor. Um, and so IAC Interactive, um, amazing sort of venture funded conglomerate. Um, I saw like the package that I was on, if I hit certain numbers, was going to be really big. And then Bain showed me, similar numbers with what would happen at NYB. And I was like, okay, so this is an alternative path to wealth that I'd never considered before. That so I thought, okay, let me see what it looks like through a Bain lens. And I was like, I know this online accounting stuff because I did it at, at Intuit. Um, and again, I met with Tim Reed and Tim Reed was one of these, is, is one of these people that I was like, I can learn just so much from this. Like it's a person, it was a person decision more than a, any, anything else. Yeah. And so it happened that it was private equity and if it all went well, then it would go well. And it happened that it went well and it gave me enough money to um, set up the seed propel. Um, uh, And, um, you know, I think for listeners, the private equity path to wealth is a really rewarding and interesting one, Um, not without like like tons of difficulty and hard work, but it's, it's... Ignored, I think, by because people are looking for the entrepreneurial path. Yeah, it's interesting. I think uh, being an entrepreneur within a corporate is often not frowned upon, but it is often seen as a more uh, challenging pathway because of the corporate structures, which I certainly think uh, stymie entrepreneurship. They do. Um, but I know a lot of people who have gone down that path and done exceptionally well. It's just good to do a lap of it, right? Yeah, and uh, you can do well financially, and you can learn a lot. Um, I learned about culture from from Tia. I learned it from um, 
as well at Intuit under Brad Smith and all of those things. Now that's the most important thing for Propel. So like, you know, it's all about what, like I, tra- I channel those those two people in particular, Brad Smith and Tim Reed, pretty much on a daily basis yeah. as we run this business. It's working well. So um, thought you wanted to get back into entrepreneur into into entrepreneurial pursuits, but you're in MYOB. At this point in time, what are you trying to achieve for yourself and for them? What's the what's the sort of next goal that you've got? Oh, so for, for us, it was a clear mission to try and um, hold ground against zero. Zero. And so yeah. I just learned about. Zero just executed very, very well, and I learned what it's like to, to be behind when you're being disrupted. Because you were in front. MYOB was in front. Oh, for minutes. Like, is it, by the time I got there, Zero, well, well. But prior to Zero, you used to get your MYOB CD down at office. Oh, they were in front for years, for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But didn't um, pivot to cloud quick enough? It didn't pivot. They, they pivoted quickly enough, but not um, in a determined enough way so it was a it was like a bet each way because they were cannibalizing their partly cannibalizing and also made a decision that um they thought based on interestingly based on the infrastructure in australia not being solid enough with the broadband and everything people didn't trust the internet for their for their accounting software so they wanted a solution that they could keep on their desktop but be online for collaboration so they developed what technically and if you listen to customers is the right solution but if you just think forward to what's actually going to happen and just trust NPN or something, you go, it's got to be all cloud and pure cloud. Yes. So they went with this hybrid approach yeah. where Zero went with pure cloud and like pure cloud wins like every day of the week. And yeah. so that's the story there. Yeah, it was it was useful to be able to collaborate with your accountants and send everything from your desktop to them. But I, yeah. I even remember thinking, why aren't they moving to cloud? Yes. And I just only could imagine it was a cannibalization of uh, existing core revenues. Oh no, it wasn't. It was more just a, it was a, it was a bet on that particular that hybrid solution, which was the wrong bet in the end. So, um, when you're in there, what do you learn from trying to keep up? What do you learn from someone who disrupts you? Um, and how do you how do you galvanise a team yeah. around coming from first place to being second and well behind? So, I think the most important lesson about when you're being disrupted is that it's hard enough, Tony, when you're running a business, like a big business like MYOB as it is, let alone having to spin up a second business that is different, like it's an online business, to compete against a pure play online business. Like it's like it's hard enough just to do a good job of running that first business on its own, let alone running another one that's completely culturally different and, it's, and both of them are completely under attack. Um, and so um, I, I understood that viscerally. I also, I, I think I miss, um, I, I underestimated the cultural change that's needed when you're doing a product and a technology change. You think, oh, we just switched the technology and our existing people will work in a new way with the new technology, but it's a complete people and process transformation as well as a technology one. And so as a product guy, I'm like, then I was very focused on, we just make the product look like this and we do all this product stuff and I, I underappreciated the, the people transformation. And we essentially, like my my other executive colleagues were well on top of that, and thankfully. And so while I was doing a product transformation, they were, they were showing me how to do a complete people and culture transformation at the same time. And if you had to choose between two those two, What's more important, getting the people right? Oh, the, or the people product? every day of the week. Yeah, right. The people every day of the week. The product will, will you, you'll get a good product after you get the right people. Like, but, but we also we got had really talented desktop folks, just like the, the, the smartest people you'll ever meet. Um, and we said, now you need to, you know, move on to this new technology. Put they put their hand up and said, I'll learn the new technology. And we say, now you have to release every every day rather than you know once a month or something. And like the process changes were too much. Like even academically, they could get it. So um, you get these other people that are digitally native that just get it. Yeah. And, uh, and we see that. And so how did MYOB turn it around and continue to punch in, in the ring where others have fallen by the wayside because the disruption's too much, the change to revenues, and you know some people fail at recreating a culture that enables people to build? So, so Tony, I think that they're still battling with it, like to this day. And, um, and it's, 
like they're pretty fortunate that they live in a world that's really sticky. Um, accounting software is really sticky. Once you're using it, you, your accountant will stick with it. Um, and um, and essentially, they were able to get to a point where their small business product was competitive with zero, and they were able to like more or less get that to neck and neck. Now the competition has moved more to like what the tools are that accountants are using, um, and so that's. That's like the next phase of disruption. Like the thing about this, disruption never finishes. Like let's say Elon Musk he develops this electric car and everyone then develops an electric car. Elon's already building like the software around the maps or he's building the software around the networking or the, the you know, it's it, it moves fast. Like there's another wave of disruption right behind that first yeah, wave. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting. I always liked MIOB because of the way it created an ecosystem, uh, not just for its direct users, the businesses, but the people who would be MYOB experts, the bookkeepers. That was part of the magic for sure. Yeah. And well, well, the accounting was a referral channel and then the experts were their outsourced support channel and those pe- people were making their own business under the umbrella of MYOB. So that, that's a in the US, they never really were successful with that and that's something that we were able to teach the US how to do actually. And so what do they call that these days? Growth loops or something like this? Or? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure, but like it's... I mean, it's super powerful, um, like having these certified... You had everything from bookkeepers that were able to create their business under it, these things called certified consultants that are helping people to like just attach all sorts of online yeah. peripherals and whatever else, all the way through to accountants. Yeah. Like, And we, th- we see there's real parallels with the wealth management industry. Like you go and see a financial advisor today and they just don't have the tools that accountants have. And the, and the big players like Iris and NetWealth and others haven't really set up this environment and ecosystem where they've got multiple players all self-reinforcing to drive the success of the whole industry. So part of, again, what we're trying to propel is like look at what we learned in accounting software, which we're just fortunate that because it had such vigorous competition from zero, the consumer got a great deal. Like we just had to innovate as fast as we could. We were able to attract great capital into the market. And so there's so many other markets now where we see um, incumbents um, that need to do what MYB did. Like they've got to run their own business, which is freaking hard, and then create a whole new business up to the side. Yeah. That's like, that's not, I just don't, like it's very challenging. And very hard for a, a listed kind of corporation to sell that to the shareholders. That's right. I mean, the investment needed for that second business, the, the new online startup, is it, actually mind-blowingly, it's, it hurts. It really hurts. I mean, it's, it's always like... More than ten, it's always between ten and two hundred million dollars, sort of thing, right? Like the smallest transformation is going to be ten million bucks. Yeah, and the one thing we know about those transformations is they always take longer. Yeah, cost more money. That's right. <laughs> yeah, they're way harder than you expect. And even so, the, the promise from MYOB, I remember having a chat with Tim. He said, "Come and join us." Like um, the idea is that we'll make this online transition, and then we'll IPO the business and be like a three-year journey. And I can't tell you what you're going to make, but probably between this number and this number and you know it was like twice as long and the, the number was like near to it <laughs> like, half as you know, much <laughs> said half twice as long half as much like just like a normal software project so why when when did you decide to get out of it when did you decide to get into propel ventures what was the sort of catalyst for going okay i'm back on my own path now i want to be back on my own terms so this is an interesting story story tony that i haven't shared with many <clears throat> and um one of the skills that i think i've got is i can see real potential in people that they don't see in themselves um and i was fortunate that tim reed saw that in me and i got to a certain point at um at myob and he'd invited me to come to a a Harvard Business School visiting lecturer who came to talk about entrepreneurial finance. And he said, come, come along, like I'm doing this thing just for fun. Um, and it was a two-day session and I freaking loved it. And I said to him afterwards, I'd rather do this stuff than do what I do each day. So I was maybe being a bit too candid. But, you know, his brain started ticking and he was then looking to engineer an opportunity for me to do what I was doing inside of MYB, but instead adjacent to and really like be a bit more free. Yeah. We'd, we'd read something when there was this phrase that it was like, I felt like the black sheep in the blue chip. Yeah. And I kind of felt that way for most of my career. Yeah. And, um, and he and I got together over a dinner one night and he said, how could we engineer an arrangement um, where you could do your 
greatest work and we don't lose you. Um, and we developed this handshake agreement where I would go out and solve this intractable problem that we couldn't solve while, whilst I was at MIB. And if I cracked it, then he would buy it. And I think we even agreed the price, um, like a couple of million bucks, if I did it. And, um, and so I went off. I, I, I left and ran all these experiments, everything I'd learned before through Scott Cook and everybody else, and created this product, My Advisor, which was very innovative as basically turning um, the numbers that were already in accounting software into words and automatically generating a management report yep. in seconds. And, um, and I was surprised that I was even able to pull it off, to be honest. Like it's natural language generation, artificial intelligence stuff. Um, so we did that and that formed the first project I ever did outside of MIB under like what then became Propel Ventures. And that must have been quite liberating to not have the constraints and constructs of the, the big company yeah. to think freely. But it's also, as you say, like it's quite difficult when you're experimenting to yeah. actually get something that works and can fit back into a big construct. But I was battling with a few things at the time because like I had to put, I, I, my self-image and ego and stuff were pretty attached to being like this big head of product at a listed company and blah, blah, blah. And so to go from that to running a team of like, for people that I'd pulled together, like using my own money, um, was all like it's the leap that all entrepreneurs make that you're just shitting yourself, really. I shat myself for a couple of years, or year and a half, whatever it was, that we built that thing. Um, didn't know whether we'd get product market fit, didn't know, like just lots of self doubt. And yeah, I look back, it was like not easy. Now, I, I mean, I've sat in those shoes, self doubt, and you know, to being an entrepreneur, it's something you're often looking in the mirror going, you know, am I going to get through this? What, is the, what does the future actually hold? Mm. How do you get up in the morning every morning facing those doubts and continue to push through? What's, the, what's in the DNA that, that drove Ben Ross? Um, so what was it that drove me at that time? I'd suggest it was fear of failure is the main thing that I was just, like I put myself out there to say, I'm going to succeed at doing this. And there was so many, what like that should have failed 50 times. Um, you know, we built it using some AI that one partner did. Then they decided that it was such a good idea that they cut me off from their APIs and went into competition with me. Like built, they built the same product that I just built. <laughs> like, and that happened like three months in. So... That was like one of 50 reasons. And so it was fear of failure, I'd suggest, that just kept me going at it. It was like, I just need to make this succeed and by hook or by crook, I will. And that um, that that um, couple of million bucks was like what was needed to just get me like to financial freedom. Yeah. I was like, every, everything until then had like nearly got me there, but not didn't. Yeah. You know, you say fear of failure, but is there also something to prove to yourself or to yeah. others? Yeah, there yeah. was absolutely that, Tony. It's part yeah. of the entrepreneurial yeah. existence yeah. that you've got. I can got. do this. Yeah. And I, I, I'd suggest that even today, so Propel, we build products for other people. Um, and like I still want to get back to building my own products. Like they are my own products. Like we pitch them into other companies. I'm like, you know, I'll say to... The MYOB or the ANZ or something, hey, imagine a world where you've got a product that does X, Y, and Z, and then we build it for them, right? Um, but I still feel like I'm like they're partly funding it. Like I, I've moved away from that stepping off the cliff and it's your own money with your own idea, with your own go to market. Um, now it's a much, I'm working inside of a much more cozy, less risky ecosystem. Yes. You want to be back on the cliff's edge? I, I think that if I was true to myself, that's where I should get back to. Like that's where entrepreneurs, that's their natural habitat. Yes. So I feel like I'm living adjacent to the natural habitat of an entrepreneur. Yeah, and you can do it for a while, but eventually that cliff top calls. And, yeah, uh, so the cliff top's definitely calling. Yep. And we have certain things that um, we really want to put our effort and money behind now. And so there's a couple of small bets. Like we, we're big into Jim Collins and he talks about firing bullets and cannonballs and so we're all about firing bullets at the moment and working out which one's going to be our cannonball yeah and and, and my um i'm lucky because our canvas is a lot bigger now i'm not just trying to solve for something for the accounting industry like we're trying to look for something that really has a big tam yeah yeah 
So um, how do you validate these ideas and the technology? You've got this um, distill, discover, deliver kind of mantra that I've seen, but how do you actually validate this technology for a business? Is it just ideation? Is it then having a return on investment proposition? It's probably all of those and a lot more. So, so we, we do this um, piece of work up front when we have an idea where we really coalesce the business strategy, the stuff that BCG and McKinsey sort of do with a product strategy and we work out like, okay, is this product actually going to like make a good business? And, and the way that we do that is that um, we um, talk to customers and we, we basically do deep customer discovery to validate and de-risk these projects. So by the time we actually spend our own money on them, because our, our model, Tony, is that we will spend our own money. So we'll, we'll talk to ANZ and say, hey, um, imagine a world where you had like, um, you know, some fancy home lending facility or something. And they say, yeah, we'd love that. And we say, we'll build that for you. And if we get product market fit, then will you buy it for this much? So we give them an option agreement to buy it. So it's similar to sort of almost selling properties off the plan in that respect. So we need to get real religion up front that we will solve the problem that we're talking about. And so the first phase of the project is all that um, um, lean startup stuff to really just de-risk the crap out of it. And how do you know in that whether the, you say you're creating a product, but for someone like ANZ, some of these things could end up being feature sets of existing yes, products? Yes, and that's fine as well. Yeah. That's fine as well. And magic is really to, to recognise that that... If we get product market fit, whether it be for a big or small thing, um, but partnering with companies that have a go-to-market, we can get out to market and have a big impact really quickly. So, that, so, and we recognise that it, it may cost single-digit millions to build a feature or a, or a product, but it costs single-digit millions or more to take it to market. So yeah. there's this sort of we are amongst equals when it's like us and our client because they've got the go-to-market and we've got the product now. So back to entrepreneurial Ben in this seat, you've got uh, all of these ideas that you can pick any one of them. How do you then pick the ones to follow? Is it because of personal interest? Is it because of great total addressable market size? You see the problem firsthand. How do you then pick something off the wall and say, yes, we're going to do these three or four or five? So we've got a bit of a filter where... Based on my MYB experience, we're looking for opportunities, particularly where companies like incumbents are being threatened by virtue of a change in technology or regulation or something like that. And so we look for that intersection where there's a burning platform where they must do something. Yep. Interestingly, private equity often operates in that space because they see the opportunity, they invest in it, and they're happy to invest extraordinarily to capture an outsized opportunity. And so we operate in that same, right. again, it's fertile habitat for us. So if I see, you know, we're just looking at, um, we've got an education client at the moment and they need to move online really quickly. They've got a great market share and we're like, private equity is involved and we can help them accelerate, capture that opportunity. So viscerally, it, it helps me because I'm stimulated from a product perspective but I'm also emotionally really bought in because I know what it's like as the, for the executives of that business where they've got private equity money, which is like, it's great. It might have like lots of zeros next to it, but it's very intimidating because you need to make sure it's used to, to actually get, get you from A to B. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't get, if you get, take the money and you don't get to B, which was what was agreed, then, you know, you, you should drop off the planet type situation. <laughs> um, so we find ourselves emotionally bought in and, Product-wise, uh, we um, we get stimulated by that as well. So that's probably where we spend most of our energy with executives that are in that scenario. And with, I mean, the way you talked about some of these macro factors, they have to do something. That's almost validation of there's a problem that it's needs so to obvious, be solved. Tony, like, so for us, it has to be that obvious that it's like, listen, even if we do an eight out of ten job here, like. We're gonna we're gonna nail it. They have to act because they have to act. Macro, it's obvious, it's yeah. so obvious. Yes. Yeah. And, and some of these trends are awesome. Like so, we think about the green energy revolution. We think about the transformation from like uh, desktop to cloud, and and we're really focusing on those macro trends and where they hit a particular business at a point in time. And so there's we've worked out from a few different vectors what like under what conditions does the propel plant grow best or do you need us and we find that 
like that that's we just have a good time in that space so let's take the contrary position pull apart for me why businesses don't capture market opportunities faster where do they fall down uh, they fall down because the people that are responsible for capturing the product market fit are not invested in that outcome they'll sit there and they'll do, go through all the motions and they'll do a process but they're not like going to bed that night shitting themselves as to whether it's going to succeed or fail and only entrepreneurs that have got skin in the game do that so yeah so values become really important then culturally to get people aligned with these outcomes yes and how do you measure for that well so our primary value at propel is founders mindset so we're essentially it comes from this research from bain um, which is all about they did this cross-sectional research of uh, thousands of um, businesses and they found that where the founder is still involved there's like outsized returns kind of 60 to 1 outsized returns it's like it's, it's it's extraordinary and so there's a real theory around this founder's mindset book and research by Bain and that value we inculcate that into our team members uh, to the point where whenever we do a new project um, we try and use a structure whereby our employees can invest in it as if it was a st- their own startup yeah. So they get a return themselves. Yep. Um, why do ideas fail then? So maybe they're not validated well enough with, with customers. Um, I think ideas are really cheap. <clears throat> if you, you can have an average idea but great execution and win. So like we, we, we share ideas really liberally um, because we just think it's all about execution well. And so my concern is not about the execution generally. It's actually about... Every single day, your engineers and team members are making 50 decisions that you're not even involved with that you need to somehow give them the right environment where they're making the right decision. And so that's like, that's what I wake up in the mornings thinking about and go to bed thinking about is like, what environment and what things as a leader do I need to do to make sure they've got the greatest context, the right, um, values and the right mindset and all of those things to make sure that the micro decisions are the right ones yeah it's funny um you know with this new uh startup that i'm involved in i'm probably for the first time in my life doing less actual grunt work behind a computer yes and spending much more of my time thinking about how to stand out the front and lead by example spot on yeah it's yeah only taken me 45 years to work it uh, out. well it's the most frightening thing as well because when you're in control and you're tapping on the keyboard, you know that mistakes, if they're made, they're your mistakes and you know when they're made. Right now, I'm like miles away from any keyboard. So like, I just like, I need, I'm a holy, I remember as a leader that happened to me at NYB where I had to make the transition to think everything that happens from now on happens through my people and not through me. And it that was a, a very uneasy thing. Yeah, and it's hard, I think, as well being an entrepreneur like yourself and me being lawyers who can't cut code as well yeah. in a tech game. I mean, that's a, that's a challenge where the technical team to me is a bit of a, a black box. Yes. It's a dark art. You've got to put a lot of trust and faith in that. Yes. So your skills have to be deployed into other areas to make sure they are problem solvers, they are writing good code, they yes. are delivering fast and building great product. Yeah, so we put a bunch of safety barriers around that for us just in terms of getting the right people in and testing them on the way through and stuff. But culture plays an important part and we've learned a lot through some of our partners by virtue of the way that they work. Um, so um, we think that software development generally is not done very well or measured very well. So we try and maximise predictability um, and stability in, t- in terms of the cycles of how much software is delivered at a point in time. Yeah. So we almost don't mind if it's slow but if it's predictable and slow, then you can work from there. If it's up one week and down the next week and like, and you've got 50 different reasons why, that's not good for us. So we've tried to industrialise and factoryize it. Um, and I'm quite lucky, like my founder is technical. And so it's a, like it's a neat combination. Yes, yeah. I've, my co-founder, yeah. I've found that. Um, why does partnering matter? You mentioned your partners. What, why, why partner? Why not just go it alone? What What... Does partnering bring to the table? Oh, so it's, for me, like, I think that my co-founder came on when we had only a couple of people and I, I couldn't have shouldered the stress and the of it without him. And I also, um, 
like the things that he brings to the table, like I'm happily married at home and I feel like I'm happily married at work and, and it's like, it's super valuable. And the things that he brings, are, um, we're constantly in this sort of synergistic, like I might come up with an idea, but it's pretty rough and then he'll be able to really polish it up. And then after it's been through his cycle and I get it back, then it's in good shape. Yeah. But so if we never met, like I'd be walking around with rough ideas that are worth five cents. So you got complementary skills. Complementary. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so that's why you're running the podcast, not me, mate. How do you keep yourself motivated? Then you know. How do you keep now that oh, you've yeah. got something up and going? It's you know. super easy now because it's not. Fe- it's it's less about fear and it's more about the excitement of learning. Yeah. I remember reading Jeff Bezos saying that he like used to, he still runs to work. He's like, can't wait to get there. Um, I've got a bit of that because at any point in time, this business is putting different challenges to me that I would have thought we never would have had. Like, so at the moment we're setting up like an offshore development center and like, I haven't done that before. And I'm learning all about like what it means to sort of set up offshore entities and, hire people offshore and you know and and so i think that every few months there's just a whole new thing that i'm out of my depth on and i have to learn as if i'm like day one yeah other people what are the key traits you look for or see in other people who are successful or drive successful businesses um probably like energy and curiosity and this desire to make the world a better place like they just think I could do it better. I just see that thread, like, and I want to have a go. Like, let let me at it. I, I was fortunate enough to have a meeting with really senior guy at um, at a that runs one of these big consulting firms, um, big four, and um, and I, I said to him, I see the work that you do, and I think that we could do a better job of it. Like, I, I want to, I, I want, I just want to do more of what that. I want to do do that. And I think that when you think of, um, you know, I, I listened to your podcast about Radek Sali and he was like, we had a better product than Synovus and they were, they were all over the place. And, um, you know, Elon Musk is like, I can make better cars. And so that desire of like, I, I can, I, I want to have a go. I can back myself. Yeah. Yeah. Is the common theme I'd suggest. How do you keep yourself interested in other people's businesses? Oh, I, I think that. Like you, it's a passion for me. Like it's just that learning of yeah. Like there's so much to learn, right? So I'm really fortunate. I'm part of a couple of groups um, that with other business owners, and they're really a gold nugget for me of inspiration and education. Like I just think that it doesn't matter the size of your business. I'll, like a, a milk bar owner, I look at them, I, I've just got so much respect. Like they've gone out on their own, they're responsible for their own profit and loss. Like that's just courageous. Lots of businesses fail go-to-market strategy. You mm. know, uh, product market fit, especially for young tech businesses is critical. What, if you could sum it up, what's the thing that you should do to try and build a successful go-to-market strategy or validate a go-to-market strategy. Oh, so I think the magic word is validate the go-to-market strategy. It's like constant experimentation with the cust- with the end customer as early as possible. So we've got examples where we'd be having a discussion in this office about like should a feature do X or Y, and we will literally stop the meeting and call up on conference phone a customer and say what should it do, like, uh, and, and so. We're just constantly validating back with the customer. We see that as the biggest risk. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's really good examples of where you start building for a example customer is like a sample of one um, from the earliest day as, as possible. And it's interesting. I always have this discussion with people in tech and, and fast-moving tech businesses. Do you back a technical founder or do you back a sales founder? And... Uh, you know, when someone's technical and quite brilliant at cutting code... It doesn't help so much. I, I don't think so. No. But others say they won't ever go into a business where the founder's not technical and can't cut code, but... Yeah. Uh, no, I think that's the interesting thing about sales-based founders is they need to actually make sales, so they need to listen to what the customer's saying, like, um, in order to find their pain point and then that that's the opportunity. So, around yeah, that. and I think that 
like I've got a like an optimistic view that in the future technology is going to become more democratized. So like the magic of the 10x engineer is not going to not going to be as important to your success. Yeah, yeah. Um, so to finish off a little bit more about Ben Ross, this is the quick fire round. Okay, who's been an inspiration to you? Lots of inspirations. Probably the most recent is uh, Tim Reid, who's now uh, runs his private equity fund and BCA chairman. But he was the CEO of MYOB. Taught me about culture. The kindest thing anyone's ever said to you. Um, so Jason Ellenport said to me, "You are worthy," and I still think about that often. And I'm not, and I and I I, I struggle with it. What's your favourite song? Um, Don't Stop Believing, Journey. Journey. Yep. <laughs> great track. Um, there is a great documentary. About, Isn't it awesome? Yeah. The <laughs> Filipino guy. Filipino dude is great amazing. Do- Watched it on a plane flying over to Europe. Oh, yeah. Did, did you cry? I did. <laughs> I'm crying thinking about it now. It was a- I don't know. You just cry on planes full stop. I don't know oh, why that is. is. It's the atmosphere. <laughs> um, favourite band? Uh I mean, probably Queen or one of those. I'll probably, you know, actually, I really like Interpol. Um, those guys, like, really original. Only three of them, and they make great music. Fondest childhood memory? I'd probably um, hooning around on my BMX as a kid and just having... That's, like, the only thing that was interesting to me. Um, what person, dead or alive, would you most like to have lunch with? I think Elon Musk or Steve Jobs. What advice would you give to founders or ideas people? The advice I'd give is to validate your idea as much as you can, as early as you can, before you get serious about it. And a good example of that is I had someone the other day willing to literally write a check for a million bucks to to, to kick off a team to build something. And I said, the first thing I do is that for under a hundred bucks, I'd do a type form like back-ended product and you'll be out within 20, 20 or 30 minutes from this meeting and, and we'll know whether this has got legs or not. And, and they were shocked. <laughs> well, Ben Ross, your uh, knowledge and fields of expertise are very wide and quite frankly, you probably are bloody worthy. Thank you for engaging with the audience and thank you very much for being on Discipline. Thanks, Tony. You're doing a great job.